This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Hello, and welcome to Get Healthy 360. Today, we're talking about a very unique topic that I don't think is really covered very much in the media, social media, or podcasts. Today, we're talking about newborn ear correction and adult ear correction. And with us today, we have Dr. Inessa Fishman. She is a board-certified ear, nose, and throat specialist. So she attended Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, completed her undergraduate studies in biology. She then went on to get her medical degree at Emory School of Medicine. Then she got into the very competitive ear, nose, and throat um, residency in Kansas, learning all about head and neck diseases and surgery for cancer, trauma, reconstruction. She then did a competitive fellowship in facial plastics and reconstructive surgery. Um, then she refined her skills in the cosmetic facial, ear, nose, and surgery, developing a wide spectrum of non-surgical facial rejuvenation techniques. She currently practices in Atlanta, Georgia. She established the Aviva Plastic Surgery and Aesthetic Center. So she's very well-rounded, highly skilled, very specialized in ear, nose, and throat, uh, throat surgery. So we are lucky to have you to, um, with us here today, Dr. Fishman. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So this is something that at least I'm not familiar with, or I haven't seen a lot on social media. When Let's start with the newborns, newborn ear deformities. Sure. Um, topic near and dear to my heart. <laughs> I, uh, interestingly enough, was not really familiar with it until I actually finished my training. Um, I knew about the concept when I was going through my ear, nose, and throat training, but didn't have much hands-on experience until I actually entered private practice and started making some connections with local physicians, including pediatricians. And one of my pediatrician colleagues asked me about it, which is how I started um, learning about newborn ear correction. Um, I find that this topic is... Not very well known in terms of treatment options amongst either parents or sometimes my um, medical colleagues as well. And I really would love for more people to know about it. Um, The concept with newborn ear deformities is this. Um, They're relatively common. About a third of kids are born with some sort of misshapen, misfolded ear, the external ear specifically. And the nice thing about that is you can actually treat it without surgery in the first few weeks of life. The external ear, which is mostly there for cosmetic purposes, it doesn't serve a whole lot of function in the the way of functional purposes. The, The external ear is made out of cartilage. That's the framework that actually creates its beautiful folds and curves. There's a skin covering most of the upper two-thirds of the ear, and there's a little bit of subcutaneous fat, especially in the fleshy earlobe part. And with newborn ear deformities, the most common things that I see in my practice are some sort of misfoldings, 
misshapen ears, folded over ears, super pointy ears that affect the cartilage framework. Um, that cartilage framework is really soft in the first few weeks of life, and that is because of high levels of mom's estrogens that are circulating in the newborn system. This makes the cartilage so soft as to be really pliable and um, able to be reshaped without surgery, without sutures, invasiveness, cutting of any sort. Um, it's a super time-limited treatment, so I really like to get my hands on babies as soon as I can. And um, really successful treatment rates are quite high, over 90% in the average patient. So I, I love doing this treatment. These are some of the happiest parents in my practice. And I feel like with this treatment, I can oftentimes avoid surgery and I can oftentimes give patients even better results than I can with surgery, which is a lot to say for someone that loves operating. So how many, how often, how often do people come to you with their new baby's ear deformities? So I probably see two or three of these patients a month. Um, like you mentioned, I am in private practice. I've been on my own for about a year and a half at this point. Um, I have a fair amount of patients that are referred to me by their pediatricians, but I would say that probably over half the parents that come into my practice with their newborns are people that found me online. Um, they really started doing their own research. They started reading about newborn ear deformities or correction without surgery. And that's how they end up reaching out to me. So with the newborn ear deformities, you're in, a, you're in Georgia. How many ear, nose, and throat specialists are, are aware or um, skilled in treating newborn ear deformities? You know, that's a really good question. I don't know that I can give you a specific number there. I can tell you this, there's a, there's a great company called Earwell um, that make a physician-driven treatment system that's sort of like an all-in-one customizable splint that is meant to be used by physicians like me um, to treat newborn ear deformities. And that is one of the more common ways that I would say parents find me because there's a physician locator part of the Earwell website that patients come to frequently. I would say that in the Atlanta area, there's probably around 12 or 15 physicians that I know of. In the state of Georgia, it's probably closer to maybe 25 or 30. Um, so those are, those are rough numbers that I could estimate. And I would say that there's probably more physicians than those just listed on the Earwell website. But again, most of the I don't know. I find that most of the issues that my patients at least tell me about is not so much lack of access, but lack of knowledge or information. The understanding that these are issues that can be treated and they can be treated without surgery. And it is a time sensitive treatment as well. So what, what conditions would be um, feasible to treat with this airwell procedure? And if you can describe that a little bit more, and what procedures would require more of a surgical intervention? Sure. So there's a whole um, there's a whole variety of newborn ear deformities that can be treated with this non-surgical treatment. The most common things that I see in newborns are prominent ears or ears that just stick out a lot. Um, 
We think that they're a pretty cute feature in the newborn, but I do find that children get teased about this sort of thing once they start growing and noticing differences about one another. And that's actually one of the more common outcomes that the newborn ear deformity literature looks at in terms of significance of correcting ears is teasing by peers, which usually appears somewhere around the five to six to seven year old range. Besides really prominent ears, I oftentimes treat conditions such as litting, which is where the upper part of the external ear is flipped over and sort of looks like an eyelid that's partially closed. I treat something called a conchal cruz, which is a prominent fold of ear cartilage within the concha, which is normally the concave sort of seashell-shaped part of the ear just behind the ear canal or the external auditory canal. Um, besides just looking a little unusual, the conchal cruise can also act like a band of tissue that pulls the ear forward. And it can be associated with prominent ears developing down the road. Um, I treat a condition called Stahl's deformity, S-T-A-H-L apostrophe S, which looks like an elf ear um, or a Spock ear where the upper part of the ear is exaggeratedly pointy, so to speak. And one of the folds of the ear cartilage, which normally sort of points um, superiorly or I guess to the front of the ear, is misshapen and is folded backwards in, in this elfin or spocky looking ear. Besides that, there certainly could be a combination of all of those things. Um, there's another condition called cryptosia or hidden ear that I treat. This is where the cartilage framework of the ear is entirely formed, but there's not enough skin, so to speak, like not enough soft tissue envelope to actually have the upper part of the ear cartilage be separate from the head, so to speak. And it looks like the ear is kind of hidden in a skin pocket um, against against the scalp. Um, I would say that those are all conditions that would be very reasonably treated with non-surgical newborn ear correction. Essentially, these are things where the ear cartilage is entirely present. It's 100% there. It's just folded or misshapen or the parts don't quite fit together quite right. On the flip side, there could be conditions where parts of the ear are missing, and that is a whole spectrum of um, basically a condition called microtia or small ear. If parts of the ear cartilage are missing, not present, and there's just not enough material there, those are the conditions that typically are going to be treated surgically. And typically for that, most surgeons and physicians will give the child some time to grow and develop physically until they're about six or seven or eight years old before surgical reconstruction is undertaken. Is there a difference between things that you would treat surgically with, say, a newborn, or actually, would you treat a newborn with surgical options? Or in, like, as a, I know it's, I'm asking a difficult question, but is it typically better to treat newborn surgically or wait, or is it, um, better to treat them when they're children, or is it really a disease-specific process that you have to determine the treatment course? Yeah, I think it probably is more of a patient-specific, disease-specific question. 
The only things that I will treat surgically in the newborn typically are basically ear tags or just excess tissue that can develop around the ear where a little bit of extra cartilage or extra cartilage in skin is present usually in front of the ear. Um, kind of like with extra digits on the hand, the, the tags can usually be pretty easily treated with surgical options. And um, with most newborns, I find that they're pretty amenable to being treated with just a little bit of injectable numbing medicine in the office. Um, maybe, you know, with the parent's help in terms of getting a little breast milk beforehand or some sugar water just to help relax the baby as much as possible. I would say that for anything else more involved than just a little removal of tissue, essentially, really all other surgical interventions, I, I don't like to do on newborns. I just don't think that their risks <clears throat> outweigh, I, I do think that the risks outweigh the benefits in that situation. So with most newborns, if they're amenable to non-surgical options, those are certainly going to be my first line of treatment. And that's the first thing that I would discuss with parents. If there is indeed um, a specific condition that I think would be better treated with surgery, I do usually like to um, have babies grow and develop and um, have fewer risks associated with anesthesia and surgery and all that good stuff, and basically not not try to jump upon them in the newborn period. Um, any other thoughts or comments about um, newborn ear issues? Yeah, the, really the main message that I want um, my colleagues and new parents to hear is this is a time-sensitive issue. The sooner the better in terms of getting newborn started on treatment. I love to see patients even in the first or the second week of life. Um, I do feel like if the ear is going to correct by itself, I usually will give it about a week to do so. Beyond that, it's just very challenging to try to treat kids who are two and three and four months of age because I do feel like their success rates with non-surgical newborn ear treatment is significantly lower than that of the true newborn child who's, you know, seven or 14 days old. So if there are any concerns, if you're concerned about the shape or the size or whatever of your newborn's ear, I do find that this is a topic that absolutely should be discussed with your pediatrician or your ENT provider or a physician that is well-versed in ear issues. So if it's okay, we'll move on then to adult ear deformities. Sure. So what are, what are the options for ear deformities? Um, because this, again, this is not a topic that is frequently discussed, but what can you, do, what kind of things do you see as far as ear deformities and what treatment options do you have? Sure. So whole list of um, ear deformities in adults as well. I would say that actually the most common thing that I see in my practice are earlobe issues. So stretch piercings, gauged earlobes that, you know, the patient no longer wants to have, um, piercings that were placed too low or problematic otherwise. That's probably the most common ear issue that I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. And the vast majority of um, earlobe concerns, I usually handle with minor surgical procedures in the office, just using the help of local anesthesia and maybe sometimes a little bit of laughing gas if a patient is really nervous about medical procedures. 
the majority of stretched ear piercings or the gauged lobes, usually those are a matter of essentially removing the old piercing or the gauging and sort of reshaping the ear lobe to, number one, get rid of the piercing, number two, make it a prettier, more youthful, more pert shape um, that would better be able to support a piercing should a patient choose to get that. Um, Beyond that, some of the more common things that I see in my practice are really pronounced scars or keloids, which is a special type of really hypertrophied or like really pronounced and overdeveloped scar to which patients can be genetically predisposed. Keloids, um, I do usually handle with surgery in terms of actually surgically removing them. I oftentimes, yeah, go ahead. So um, out of curiosity, so at least feels I'm familiar with, so um, typically wrestlers or people who fight in mixed martial arts, they they tend to get uh, cauliflower ear. Yeah. So what are the, so as a general rule, people who get the cauliflower ear tend to really like it when they get them. But then Mm -hmm. as time goes on and say they're working a professional job or their significant other gets tired of looking at the cauliflower ear, say they want to get it fixed. Yeah. How, how fixable is that? Um, Cauliflower ears are hard. I, I, I think they are hard, not just for me, (laughs) but for my facial plastics and ENT colleagues as well. Cauliflower ears are different than keloids or other scars, but they are essentially due to scar. So between the skin and the cartilage of the ear, there's not a whole lot of space. And when there's an injury sustained by the ear, there can be this thing called a hematoma or essentially a deep bruise or a blood collection that lifts the skin off the cartilage framework. Um, Those need to be treated sooner rather than later in terms of removing the blood and actually getting the skin to stick back onto the ear cartilage. And if the hematoma or the blood collection is not adequately treated, there can be a lot of excessive scar tissue that results in that cauliflower ear that you're describing, which is where the skin is no longer laying nice and neat against the cartilage framework of the ear. And it looks really misshapen because of the scarring that's underneath. The experience that I have with cauliflower ears is mostly treating them for really functional reasons, not even for aesthetic reasons. Some previous athletes come to me and they say, you know, I can't even wear earbuds anymore because there's so much car tissue and it obstructs my natural ear canal. So that's that's not a difficult thing to surgically go in there and sort of scrape out some of the scar tissue from under the skin and get it to lay down a bit more flat. But in terms of quote unquote fixing the cauliflower ear or getting it to look 100% uninjured, I don't think I've ever been able to accomplish that. And I think in that situation, it's very important to have reasonable expectations in terms of patient expectations from what I can accomplish aesthetically. I can make the ear look better, but I can't make it look perfect or completely uninjured. Suggestions for those that are interested in preventing cauliflower ear? Yeah, so ear protection is super important. Um, I know it's not like the cool thing to do is to wear ear protection, but wrestlers, other athletes, it's it's just prevention is important and education in terms of if you do sustain an injury, that really does need to be handled and managed appropriately sooner rather than later. 
because the more time goes by, the more of that inflammation and scarring happens that prevents the skin from laying back down um, against the ear where it needs to go. So if someone develops that blood clot underneath the skin, what would be the, ni- what would be the best steps? I would say that the best steps would probably be to reach out to a physician in an urgent care or emergency room type setting or primary care physician or an ENT if you have a relationship with any of those. The way that I usually manage uh, ear hematomas or blood collections under the skin is I numb the patient with injection of numbing medicine, which is usually the shortest but also the most uncomfortable part of this whole procedure. It's just kind of stingy for about 10-15 seconds. Once the patient's nice and numb, I create small nicks in the skin of the ear in order to release the blood that's underneath. Beyond that, I usually sew on a dressing, like a bolster, onto the ear that presses down on the skin and sort of firmly guides it where it needs to go back against the ear cartilage and hopefully prevents the recollection of blood or hematoma under the skin again. So that's, that's the proper management for, for that particular problem. That's a great explanation. So before, so can we, we can go back to what you were talking about before we took the deep dive into cauliflower ear. Sure. Um, so ear keloids, scars, um, two long earlobes, I would say those are the most common things that I see. Um, back to ear deformities or sort of misfolded or misshapen ears. And do you feel like I see a fair amount of prominent ears in my adult patients Usually my adult patients will come to me in their late teenage or sort of their 20s or 30s, those sorts of age spans, and describe what I was telling you before where, you know, they may have grown up feeling self-conscious about their stuck out ears, dumbo ears, elephant ears, whatever you want to say, faced a lot of teasing from their peers when they were growing up and just had always thought about hmm, getting their ears fixed, quote unquote. Um, prominent ears I manage surgically with ear pinning procedures to surgically reshape the ear cartilage and get it to lay more flat and in a more whatever aesthetically appealing position against the head. Um, there are some related uh, congenital ear deformities. Yes, go ahead. Oh, so quick question. How can you go into some details to how exactly you, you quote pin the ears back? Sure. Yeah. For example, how the questions I'm wondering is how invasive is that procedure? What is the recovery time? Yeah, of course. So, you know, what I generally tell patients is I think any surgery that comes to your body is a big deal. In the grand scheme of what I do, I think ear reshaping or pinning procedures are on the less invasive side than on the more invasive side. And I say that mostly because these surgeries certainly can be done under local anesthesia. Um, If a patient is agreeable and is mature enough, they they do not need to go to the operating room for this sort of experience. And the downtime or the recovery associated with ear shaping surgery is usually less than a week for the average person. So in my mind, I would say that these are on the less as opposed to the more invasive side. In terms of actual surgical details, um, there's usually two really common reasons for ears to be stuck out or overly prominent. The first one is essentially overgrowth of the conchal cartilage, and the concha is that seashell-shaped part of the ear that's behind the ear canal. 
if that is hypertrophied or too um, overgrown, so to speak, that forces the whole framework of the ear to be further apart from the head than things normally should be. So that's one of the more common things that I see. The second most common thing that I see is a poorly folded fold of cartilage. (laughs) There's normally a Y-shaped fold in the cartilage that's called the antihelix. And it's sort of a forward-facing Y in the ear, so to speak. If there's not enough of a fold, or sometimes the fold can be completely absent, the upper third of the ear can be really floppy looking and can be too forward, so to speak, and, and not against the head. So those two things being some of the more common physical exam findings in people with prominent ears, those are the two things that I most commonly treat surgically. So how do I do that? What, what I usually do is after numbing the patient, I'll put a cut or an incision in the crease behind the ear, in the natural crease between the ear and the head. That helps me to hide my scar and make it essentially imperceptible to the average person. Once I make that incision, I essentially dissect or lift the skin off the ear cartilage. If I need to remove extra height from that concha or that seashell-shaped part of the ear, I go ahead and do that through the same incision, and that makes the basically the bottom two-thirds of the ear lay more flush against the head. The second thing that I most commonly do is if someone has an absent or a poorly folded antihelical fold, that, that Y-shaped part of the ear, I usually will recreate that. And I do that with a combination of scoring of the cartilage to sort of selectively weaken it in areas where I want it to fold more. And I place sutures or stitches that are permanent, meaning not absorbable, in order to fold the cartilage that I want it to be. And typically that addresses prominence or stuck out ear in the upper third of it. So I would say more than 90% of the time, those are the two common surgical maneuvers that I combine together. Once I'm done, once I'm happy, I've measured the distance on both sides. I'm happy with how the ears look from the front and the back. I usually will trim a little bit of excess skin from that same cut behind the ear. And I'll put some absorbable stitches there to close my incision. And that's that. Beyond that, the patient gets a little compressive dressing and like a bulky headband looking thing that they wear for about 24 hours. And otherwise they are, they are done and good to go for the procedure. And um, typically these things are not covered by insurance. You've mentioned lots of different ear procedures um, for adults. What, what's the price range on average? Um, for, and, and I know every case is a little bit different, but what's the price range on average if, uh, if people are interested? Sure. So I, I may imagine it varies widely, both geographically and based on specialty and all that good stuff. In my practice, then average earlobe repair is going to be like in the five to $700 range for just a sewing of the earlobe piercing closed and re-piercing. The ear pinning procedure or ear shaping surgery is usually going to be in the five to 7,000 range. That can be more if a patient really does need to go to the operating room and then they face the additional expenses of things like anesthesia and operating room facilities. Is that per ear? 
No, it's for usually for two years combined. Um, so okay. if it's just one year, usually we'll just half the price. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned insurance. Um, I do find that insurance does not cover things like ear lobe repairs and ear shaping surgeries because they consider them cosmetic procedures. With the newborns, it's actually pretty frequent that insurance does cover it um, mm-hmm. under the uh, title of congenital you know, newborn ear deformity. And I don't, I don't really understand what the difference is between treating a newborn versus treating an adult, but that's how it's been in, um, in my experience. Fascinating. Um, any other ear deformities in adults that we have not addressed? We didn't talk about microtia reconstruction a whole lot, and that's not something that I do in my practice. So when a person has a complete absence of the external ear, or if a lot of the ear pieces are missing, that is usually a surgical procedure in terms of reconstruction. And again, not something that I do in my practice, but something that a lot of my well-respected plastic surgery and ENT and facial plastics colleagues do. Um, and we can certainly talk about that for a really long period of time. But um, that's, a, that's a super interesting treatment as well. That's fascinating. I'm assuming that's a much more invasive procedure. I would say that that is going to be on the more, yeah, uh, more invasive end of the spectrum if, you know, there's, there's certainly a variety of treatment options for something like that, but if a patient is deemed a good candidate for reconstruction with their own tissue, this typically involves harvesting rib cartilage from the patient, and it typically involves reconstructive procedures that are going to be done in a series of steps as opposed to sort of a one-and-done sort of surgery. There's another reconstructive option that involves placing a synthetic uh, prosthesis underneath the skin of the scalp. Um, That is usually a one and done sort of surgery. And that is something that a lot of patients choose to do. And then something that we used to do a lot in our training was essentially get patients ready for a purely prosthetic ear in the setting of trauma, for example, or sometimes microtia. And in that situation, tiny little kind of like magnetic posts are surgically implanted into the bone around where the ear normally would be. And then a synthetic um, prosthesis can be snapped onto that. So that's sort of the spectrum of options for a patient with microtia or an absent or a malformed ear. And just to clarify, just in case anyone wasn't aware, so just define microtia for us. Microtia is essentially either the absence or missing a lot of parts of the external ear. The what we normally see as the ear, including the little earlobe and the pretty curves and shapes of the ear up top. If a child is born essentially without any of the ear or missing quite a few parts of it, that's what microtia is. Fantastic. Well. Um So to conclude, what we talked about, basically baby ears and things you can do for newborns, and then a variety of adult conditions with ear deformities. And um, I think for some people, the the shape of their ears are going to bother them. And for the aesthetics, um, it it would be well worth looking into. I would recommend a board-certified ENT plastic surgeon. Um, and then for my own personal interest, we, we took a deep dive into the world of cauliflower ear and wrestling and MMA. Sure. And any closing thoughts or <laughs> anything else you want, um, the listeners to know about? Um, 
you know, I'd love my practice. I think the practice of plastic surgery, facial plastics is super interesting. I love ENT, which is what I trained in. Um, I think there's definitely, it's, it's, it's a great thing to have a lot of information online. And I am really happy to see a lot of patients walk through my doors with a lot of education. But I do think that it's at the same time also a really good thing to sort of have more information that is well vetted, comes with experience, comes with, you know, a variety of treatment options out there. And I'm hoping that your podcast accomplishes some of that in terms of, I don't know, educating patients with some good info. And I think my closing question is, what do you love most about your job? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, I, I really like the variety of it. I like the fact that, you know, my clinic has a newborn in addition to someone in their 70s. And I, in general, really enjoy the fact that the majority of my patients are healthy um, and want to look their best and put their best face forward. And they trust their face to me <laughs> and their appearance to me. Um, I really like working with my hands. I really like, you know, seeing immediate gratification of surgery and some of the delayed gratification in terms of some of these non-surgical procedures that we've discussed. So I'd say it's a lot of different factors, but overall it's the fact that I get to combine medicine with a little bit of artistry and that, that makes me really happy. Well, Dr. Fishman, I sincerely appreciate the time that you've taken out of your busy um, work and surgical schedule to do this podcast. And thank you on behalf of everyone else um, for you sharing your in-depth information about ear cosmetics and non-not-so-cosmetic um, related issues. Yeah, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.